Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week I'll be talking to Paul Mason about a new political economy, the coming of the robots and the need to defend the human being. First though, I'm joined as ever here in the studio by Prospect's Arts and Books editor, Samir Rahim, as well as our commissioning editor, Alex Dean, to discuss the latest in culture and politics. Now, Alex, we're giving you a week off Brexit, I believe, Um, because you've been thinking about the Chinese tech giant Huawei and its dealings with the UK security state. Well, this was the story about the leak um, towards the end of last week. And uh, Huawei is kind of a technology giant with uh, roots deep in the (laughs) Chinese state. Uh, And there's security concerns, basically, about how much access we give it to our 5G kind of next generation telecoms network um and there was a meeting of the national security council uh and some information that (laughs) was very sensitive and and private ended up leaking Uh, and so this has been this whole scandal and i think there's uh, a few things worth picking out the first is that it feels a little bit like maybe a minister in this kind of febrile atmosphere of political leaking kind of got carried away <laughs> and it's because there's so many leaks coming from the cabinet at the moment on brexit i mean everything leaks even sometimes before cabinet's even finished and it feels like maybe um a little bit of amateurism and failure to distinguish between political like kind of run-of-the-mill political leaking and actually something that is a lot more serious and a lot rarer so what was it that came out i mean <sighs> so it was the decision to allow huawei a role in some of our future 5G networks. So we're not going to let them in on everything, you know, to have total control, but also we're not going to ban them completely. But this was going to have to come out publicly at some point. It's not like giving away MI5 advice that you might sit on forever, is it? Because no. it's a policy. Yes, it's ex- that's exactly right. So um, it's only leaking something that was going to come out anyway. Um, I guess one takeaway is that it was just really embarrassing <laughs> it's really embarrassing and what it signals about um you know a leaky national security council and uh, basically uh, a kind of flavor of amateurism in all this um is the first takeaway i think the second takeaway is um the much bigger question about the role of china as we kind of go forward into the 21st century and how you balance these two different things that are often competing economic benefits and security risks. I mean, anyone, Samir, who um, followed in any way the 
Edward Snowden revelations uh, a few years ago knows that the British, Australian, American security states routinely uh, kept what they call metadata that they can turn into, um, like basically knowing who you are, who you're messaging and why. So we do this anyway. We've got to accept the reality that China's going to do the same thing at least, haven't we? Absolutely. And it's funny, isn't it? We all know that we all spy on each other, even allies. There was a fuss about Germany, wasn't there, and Angela Merkel's communications being uh, tapped. Uh, but By the US. By the US. But you know, isn't it maybe a good thing if China's spying on us? We'll spy on them. We'll know more about each other. And in a world in which political leaders can make posturing uh, statements and populism is on the rise, maybe it's good for security services of various nations to know what's actually going on. Counterintuitive line, I can see the thought. Um, I mean, what's interesting, I think, in all this, you just mentioned populism. Um, And of course, it's interesting looking at the US's stance on this, um, because Trump, the America first president, who has obviously entered into a trade war with China and so on, his rhetoric on this has been so hardline. Um, But then that's why he's loved by his base. So it's one of those weird situations where the very problem that pop- <laughs> that you know populists like Trump are criticizing, if the problems didn't exist, they wouldn't have any grievance to kind of stir up. So actually all of this works in Trump's favor. He had his own problems Trump, didn't he? Because didn't he talk about meeting meeting the Israelis and then telling him that um terrorists were trying to get laptops on airplanes and this was actually quite a quite a serious security leak when he mentioned it in a speech or something later on because that that seems to have much more practical effect why i was being a bit flippant though is because i don't seriously think that um uh anything really important has been leaked has it it's just embarrassing for the government because i think theresa may wanted to get this sort of done without people investigating it too closely I mean, basically, I think the real reason that this is so important is as a symbol and kind of uh, what it heralds about the difficult decisions ahead. Um, I mean, you know, mm. I mean, British governments of various stripes have kind of flip-flopped a bit on China um, because we had, the, there was the golden, what do they call it, the golden era or something with Cameron and Osborne and, and China. There was They kind of pivoted to China. Um, and then... Maple back when she first came in. Hinkley. About a week. Yeah, it was Hinkley Point C, wasn't it? Because of Chinese investment in that project. And she she very nearly pulled the plug um, before deciding eventually to go ahead. Um, and in Australia, we ran a big piece a year or so ago about Australia, where, like, by the dint of economics, they're just much more embroiled with China. China's the biggest outward investor and so on. Like, it's in the place where we will all get to. And um, so they're making decisions now about road projects and things and whether or not they can take the political flack that will come with this road project electrification of a train or whatever it is. The political flack that you have to pay is like taking Chinese money and knowing it will come with certain conditions. Yeah. So, I mean, Australia is really interesting because they are to a level totally beyond Britain. Um, They're kind of within China's regulatory orbit. So they, I mean, if they want, um, you know, it's almost like with the EU and it's, we talk about supply chains and frictionless trade and stuff. It's kind of it's kind of similar but with China for them. And they've got these massive trade offs to consider, like the one you were just saying. Um, Australia have decided not to let Huawei in in the way that 
the National Security Council leak showed that we are going to let them in. So it's, um, you know, different countries coming at it in different ways. But I think the real takeaway from all of this is that in the years to come, we're going to have to make decisions. Um, we're going to have to decide whether the security risks are worth it um, for the economic opportunities. And I, I, you, I don't know how that debate is going to pan out. Okay, from fraught modern day foreign metaphorical conflicts to blood-stained fields in historic wars, Samir, which is what you've been thinking about. Yeah, I went to see the Don McCullen exhibition at the Tate, which I think is on for another week or so um, after this podcast goes out. So do do get down there. It's it's an amazing, extremely moving, powerful exhibition. He's a great water photographer, uh, a British, born in 1935, perhaps best known for... Uh, photograph he took in Vietnam of a shell-shocked marine clutching um, at his gun. Um, but over the years, he's been to almost every hotspot in the world, um, from Cyprus doing the sort of Turkish-Greek wars, Berlin uh, pre uh, the fall of the wall, Londonderry, Sabra and Shatila. Um, what's interesting, though, is that throughout the whole exhibition... McCullen himself has little sort of quotes um, telling us about his work and his discomfort, really, um, at some of the things that he's had to photograph. There are some amazing scenes here. There's a there's a there's a point at which you see someone just about to be executed, for example. He gets right in up close. There's a point to which a Turkish uh, man has just been killed in his own house. And Don McCullen is there photographing the scene as his family come in just to see the um, um, what's happened and, and, and they're sort of mourning. You have sort of women coming across their dead family members. One amazing picture, really, of, I think, Biafra in the late 1960s uh, of a soldier talking to his dead colleague, telling him that he's um, sacrificed himself for the cause. These amazingly intimate moments. And it leads to the question of, you know, what kind of permission does Don McCullen have to take these photographs? Is he anguished about it, do you think? I mean, he's obviously upset by some of the things he's seen, as anyone would be. But does he think duty outs and you've just got to go there and snap it? Well, he says that he sort of does try and take permission from the people who he photographs. Not by asking them to sign, I think, but almost... um, by acting as a kind of witness. So he, he sort of um, catches their eye and tries to sort of make clear that he is photographing. He doesn't do anything in secret. He makes it obvious what he's doing. So he thinks that gives it gives himself some kind of cover morally by doing that. When when I went round the exhibition, um, the, the photographs that I really couldn't look at uh, were the starving children um, who you knew were, uh, going to die in a few days time I mean these children have died many years ago now um, but for me there was just something too raw and too um, emotional about looking at that and did there you is find- some kind of dignity in in mourning for example but just to have the sort of um, the picture the kind of picture that he would do for the Sunday Times for example that would say you know there's a famine going on here we need to do something about it um, and once that moment has passed I wonder whether those photographs then lose any kind of justification that they once had and do you did you find yourself thinking well you were there like 
with a camera and a packed lunch, you could have given them half the lunch. You know what I mean? It's is that part of the discomfort? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, but it's 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 it, you know he, his job is there to, is is to take photographs and to sort of he definitely thinks of himself as as a sort of moral mission. You know, he definitely thinks that taking photographs and exposing injustices to the world will somehow make a big change in policy. Um, what, of course, you do realise is by looking at these photographs is that a lot of the time they didn't make that much difference and it was just somebody's uh, newspaper um, and it's turned into a, a newspaper picture that they read over their breakfast and it becomes a sort of entertainment. And I think that's something that he is uncomfortable with and is very aware of. So, I mean, do you think that um, that's something that art and maybe particularly kind of photography should seek to do is to make a positive, positive difference? Well, McCullen says that um, he's very careful about how he um, presents his work. They're aesthetically beautiful objects. They do really look really beautiful, even if they're presenting ugly scenes. And in one of the quotes of the exhibition, he does explain why that's the case. He says that he wants the voice, as the voice of the photograph, as it were, to seduce people into um, actually hanging on a bit longer. So they are atrocity pictures. But he wants to leave people um, not with an intimidating memory, but with what he calls a conscious obligation. So as it were, you get drawn in for the um, aesthetics of the image, um, for the drama of it, from, in a way, the beauty of it. But he's doing that because he wants you to ultimately look at the injustice that's going on there. Um, uh, with conflicts that are long gone, uh, like, for example, in Cyprus, um, uh, it... it, it which, where he photographed a lot, um, and in Lebanon, it does give you a sense of hope that, I mean, societies can recover and they can change from these things. He does have also some photographs from Syria where he took pictures um, of Palmyra in 2006, and then he went back after ISIS destroyed it afterwards. And putting them side by side was, was very powerful. OK, thank you both very much. Now, on to our main interview this week, where I sat down with Paul Mason, who's a radical economist and uh, reporter, to chat about everything from climate change to the rise of the alt-right and why he thinks the way to see them off is to defend the human being. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
You're listening to the Prospect Podcast. I'm here with Paul Mason. And Paul, you've published um, an urgent and sweeping manifesto to save the human being from greed, from ancient hatred such as racism and misogyny, and all of it twisted by new technologies of control. Sounds a bit chilling, but can I just start by asking you whether in the round things are really so bad as all that? You know, you know the sort of argument that worldwide absolute poverty tended to go down, preventable diseases have declined. With sexuality and race, you talk about new kind of whipping up of hatreds, but there's a lot more tolerance overall than there used to be. And the radical left is always saying that we're on the cusp of some sort of crisis, but might there not still be uh, it's all going to be all right in the end uh, version of events? I wish it were true that it would be all right in the end if we did nothing. But I think you could say, well, the... The, the, there are levels of progress, and my book is called Clear Bright Future because I believe in an optimistic future for humankind. But there are levels of progress that depend purely on technology. So you could say, yes, uh, preventable diseases are declining. Um, but there are levels of progress that are also reversible. And I'm thinking, you know, I think eight years ago, I reported on one of the last. Um, abortion clinics in the state of Ohio. And I remember speaking to these slightly crazed Christian uh, fundamentalist people who said, we're going to introduce a heartbeat law. So as soon as you can hear the heartbeat of the fetus, it's a human being and abortion is banned. Well, that's no law in Ohio and there are no more abortion clinics. And the nurses, some of them Christian, who were working in that abortion clinic, are now non-abortion nurses. That's not progress. And what the book is about, the origins of this new reaction that we see all across the Western world. It's no longer we're observing it in uh, the Islamic Caliphate or, uh, you know, Narendra Modi's India, you know, where where there is a celebration of Hindu nationalism. Uh, We're now seeing reactionary culture take hold across Western civilization And yes, the book says this is how bad the threat is. The threat is we could lose it all. Now, Paul, you call the system that went pop in 2008 neoliberalism, which you define as the driving of competition into every last corner of public and private life. Hmm. But intriguingly, you also warn that this has given us a dry run for the robots that are now coming after us. Now, that seems like a bit of a leap. Can you explain how it works? As I reported the crisis post-2008, and I always said in in the books I wrote about it and the articles I wrote about it, this is bigger than you think it is. What what occurred to me was is that the the crisis of a market dominated ideology, which says, you know, subject every decision in your life, every decision of government uh, to the criterion of the market, was going to hollow out our ability to think in a human way. And the the best way I can put it is, you know, if if I asked you to hand over all decisions in your life to a machine, you would tell me to get lost. Um, you know, who you love, who you date, uh, what your government can and can't do, hand it over to a machine that is autonomous. No, no human guiding hand sitting behind it like Wizard of Oz. It's an autonomously guided machine. You'd say hmm. no. But that's what we've done in the 30 years of market fundamentalism over neoliberalism. And it's left us incredibly defenseless against the new threat, 
which is the threat of algorithmic control. Uh, the, uh, you know, the Facebook plus Cambridge Analytica, you know, Cambridge Analytica can know 5,000 data points about you and me. We can't hold 5,000 facts about ourselves in our heads consciously. That means they can control us. And the worst preparation for the era of machine control that is coming down the tracks at us was to spend 30 years handing o over everything to a machine called the market. So yes, I draw a parallel, um, and I say that as a result, the, you, you, you said earlier, you know, the left's always talking about crisis. This is a, a deep crisis because it's a crisis of agency. I, I think that the levels of agency one finds uh, among people who have lived their lives in in, in a mar highly marketized uh, and ideologically, you know, nothing better than this, guys. Nothing better is possible than to hand every decision of your life over to Microsoft, Facebook, um, Nike. To live your life in that world and then to be confronted by Trump, Bolsonaro, Putin, you know, uh, Salvini in Italy, these horrors that are advancing towards us, has left us very, very defenceless. So do you think 2008, which, as you say, you reported on a great deal, could turn out to be one of the biggest turning points in human history ever? No, because 2008 was in its own way simply the blow up of a 30 year period of history. What I said was, look, you know, it's the it's in in one sense, this is just something natural that that we I've lived through twice now. I saw the end of Keynesianism. I saw the Keynesian uh, formulae for running society blow up in people's faces. It no longer worked. And in 2008, we simply saw the neoliberal fundamentalism blow up in the faces of that particular elite. The, the, the problem is that we had attributed to the neoliberal era a level of finality and perfection that was always irrational. And, and we on the left said this, you know, to, to people like Fukuyama, do not go there. Do not go down the route of, you know, Hegel's, you know, end of history metaphor. Because look what happened to Hegel's society. Look what happened to Imperial Germany. It blew up. But they went there. And as Fukuyama's perfectly reasonable philosophical premise that uh, liberalism plus free markets are probably permanent. You know, as that percolated down into the popular consciousness, it became it became possible to believe that this really was perfection, and that there was nothing better possible, and that there was no it, there was no point thinking about or imagining about imagining a better form of society. Now, when the market gods failed and then failed magnificently in two thousand and eight, two thousand and eleven. What I then observed happening, and it, this is something that happens more 2012, 14, 15, 16. That's the turning point. And it is as people react to the failure of the new God, which is the market, mm -hmm. is there something to replace it? What do I believe in? Because we kept the economy on uh, life support. You can't keep ideology on life support. People's brains demand coherence. And people say, well, if this doesn't work anymore, if the market's not working for me, I cannot see how my kid goes to university, gets a decent job, how my country stops looking like a kind of zombie movie, hit the poorest towns. Well, we do have some older gods. And they are race, nation, ethnicity, and male supremacy. And I think that the turning point we are living through, which is the one where we've seen the first victories of that, of Trump, Bolsonaro, etc., is the bigger turning point. And how we react to it 
will definitely define the rest of the century. And and we ha- we now have rising cult- you know rising economies in India, China, where there is no presupposition that the intelligentsia, that the business class are going to be you know in any way liberal or even uh, democratic or even uh, wedded to rationalism. You know, they'll use rationalism as far as it you, know, you make a you make an electronic car work. You use science, but but no, the the traditions of veneration for the Enlightenment culture. And yes, I am one of those white guys who wants to defend the principles of the Enlightenment. Um, the traditions of veneration for that are not so great in the rising economic powers, Russia, India, China, as they are for us. So the turning point is. Do we let them die or do we defend them? Um, let's just have a word on the USA because that um, should have been, and you quote Hannah Arendt saying, was the, the one place where the Western tradition was most um, embedded. But since 2016, um, rationality has come into question. On the day Trump was inaugurated, I was in Washington, D.C. on the big black block riot. And be- before that, I met... This Trump supporter in the park, who and I write about him in the book because I had a, a, a very sensible and decent discussion with him. Old old farmer from Tennessee. He 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 could look at the he looked at this field full of college students, you know, in their little black bandanas, and saw black people. This was the weird thing. His eyes weren't connected to what he was thinking about. He could only see poor black people who he resented in Tennessee. And then when I challenged him about climate change, he just started coming out with, you know, uh, what is technically known as bullshit. He just started to talk about camels, camel skeletons being found under the Antarctic, meaning that the world has probably just turned around and that's how climate change. What's happening here is a retreat, it's, it's a quite staged retreat from rationality. Because if, if rationality tells you, vaccinate your kids and they don't get measles, but you don't want, something in your inner values makes you resent the obligation to be vaccinated. Mm. What you say is, well, vaccination doesn't work. And then you, on the scale of climate change, on the issue of climate change, we get the, you know, the, the classic logical regression that this guy did. I don't want to give up my farming lifestyle. I don't want to pay tax. I don't want to see um, wind farms built at the taxpayer's expense. Therefore, climate change must be wrong. And this would not be frightening if it were not becoming a universal response. It is a response that is that has always been restrained by, as it were, centre-right politics. No centre-right politician would... Um, as uh, a Baptist preacher at the weekend I saw on video do this, stand up and say, Trump is being attack- attacked by witchcraft. You know, President Trump is under, this, under, the, under attack from witches. Okay, but, but Baptist, po- Baptist preachers will always do that, crazy ones. But, but you know, kind of Jeb Bush is not going to do that. And so we had this, like, defense line for rationality in the form of conservatism. And what's the biggest problem in the number one problem in america is conservatism has blown up it's it's become its defenses against irrationality racism sexism have gone you can see that in the gop congressional uh membership they have no idea what to do about trump and so uh america in the book i i i dwell quite a lot on 
why did Trump happen? What is the class analysis? What is the what fraction of American capitalism wanted Trump? And I think it's obvious those who make money out of chaos. Trump is a chaos bringer, and people like uh, Renaissance Technologies, people like Bannon from Breitbart, make money from chaos, and that's quite a, a niche strategy in capitalism. But then, yeah, the the real the real traumatic point we've got to is that. When people reached for the kind of bookshelves and said, well, what's the, what's the talisman we can use to guard against this? It's liberalism. And you reach for the, the works of Hannah Arendt, with whom I've been incredibly engaged in the writing of this book as a critique, but as a kind of constructive critique. Arendt believed that American society was immune to what had happened in Germany in the 30s. And she described that as the, the collapse of the old order, the old order being unable to deliver to ordinary people. Well, now that's happening in America, it kind of throws into question the whole assumption uh, of Arendt and people who still, you know, use her as the, as the, as the, the, um, the touchstone of liberalism. Um, any society, even a new one, even one with an uninterrupted 250-year um, commitment to constitutional democracy, is vulnerable to what's happening, because what's happening is the failure of an ideology. And it became so pervasive, neoliberalism, it, it, it became what Wendy Brown, the sociologist, called calls an order of normative reason. An ideology you can't break out of. You can't see the outside of it. You can't see what's wrong with it. But if, it, if it's failing, I'm afraid those, those of us who want to defend democracy, defend rationality, defend science, are going to have to move on from neoliberalism. You have to. You cannot link the defence of these things anymore to the defence of a, a failing economic settlement that no longer works for people. There's a lot um, in in what you say in summing up, like the the drift of public policy over over a thirty year period, and then the kind of way that, if not with the bang, but with the whimper afterwards of people realising that it, it, it wasn't working like it was meant to, that people were weighed down by debts and so on. But um, don't if you want to clear neoliberalism out of the way, don't you need something sort of plausible and new? And I know you've been very involved with the with the Corbyn project, and something that a lot of people worry about with that is actually most of the solutions that it's chosen to emphasise look rather backward looking. Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book Post Capitalism in 2015, before <coughs> Corbyn was ever elected, was because I, I, my critique of the left, both of the anarchist and horizontalist left, who are even now running around outside this building we're speaking in on the exist on the Extinction Rebellion uh, protest, the pr the critique of them was they didn't have a goal. Mm -hmm. The critique of the s traditional socialist, Benite, Stalinist left is that they had the wrong goal. And that also, they've got no theory of their own failure. You know, no theory of why did uh, Mitterrand fail. No theory of why uh, did uh, the Soviet Union fail. And so I wrote a book that you, what, what you, you cannot accuse me of, of, of avoiding the question of a holistic systemic change. I mean, that's why I wrote Post-Capitalism. With Corbyn, for me, Corbyn is a state... Corbynism, what is it? I mean, I, I'm supposed to be part of it. I don't know what it is. Um, it's a mixture, in fact, of um, two, two inadequate sets of ideas. One is, one is horizontalist, uh, autonomist radicalism, and the other is old Benite social democracy. And I don't, I don't buy either of them. Um, and I, I do think at some point, you know, at some point, Jeremy is 69, 70, you know, at some point, a 
later iteration of a social democratic leftist uh, policy will come to embody far more of a synthesis of some of the ideas I advocate. There are other thinkers in this movement advocating very radical things in terms of of technological change. So you know, all, you know automating society, delinking work from wages, um, exploiting the network effects of technology, uh, bringing in human rights to data symmetry. That is, you know, so that I have the right to know what the Facebook algorithm is trying to do to me, that I think would be at the center of a leftist project that I am committed to. Corbynism for me is a stage on the way of it. It's also you fight the battles that are there in front of you. The, the battle in front of us, the left, in 2015 was to prevent yet another bland, you know, sort of bland, emotionless uh, technocrat from running the party because it was going nowhere. Um, Corbynism has its own problems, and this book doesn't really address them. I mean, the book, no. uh, it addresses one of them, and that is that there are two Marxisms. I say it in the book, the same, E.P. Thompson, Edward Thompson said this, there's two Marxisms. One, inhuman, anti-human. Uh, it sees history as a machine. You know, history, uh, a, a, a process without a subject, is what Louis Althusser, the French philosopher, said, Marxist philosopher. Well, I'm not one of those Marxists. I'm a Marxist like Thompson that says humanity has to be at the center of the project um, and, that, and that, that the human-centric radicalism has to have a theory of human beings that gives them agency over history. Now, that is relevant to Corbynism because not Jeremy himself, not the people at the center of the PLP, but on the edges of it, you know, we've got some pretty scary, unrepentant Stalinists who joke about the gulag, uh, you know, I mean, to me, unless you have a, uh, for the left must begin every day thinking about what went wrong in the 20th century for us. And to be able to make jokes about the gulag mm. uh, is a very scary bit thing. These are young people who didn't have to, who didn't grow up with, you know, Solzhenitsyn and, and, and didn't grow up with, um, I probably haven't met people who lived through the Cultural Revolution and therefore don't have it ingrained in, in them in the way I do that we must understand what went wrong with those totalitarian leftist projects in the 20th century in order to be able to not repeat them in the 21st. An awful lot of the focus obviously is on tech and the need to democratise and transform uh, this technology that's transforming the way everything seems to work. It's also a transnational um, technology, isn't it? And so any solution, I my feeling is that you think any solution is going to have to be transnational as well. Um, how does it feel to be putting this forward at a moment when lots of people are saying globalization's perhaps going into reverse and lots of people on the left are saying jolly good thing too? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I said in post-capitalism, you know, globalization is a policy. It's not something natural. It's not something inevitable. And when you said this, even when I used to say it to my colleagues on Newsnight, they thought it was like uh, heresy um, to suggest that globalization had been in some way designed by people. Um, but no, that's pretty clear. It is breaking up. We're seeing the fragmentation of a multilateral global order. And I do not celebrate it, although I understand its inevitability. Now, for me, what, yes, th there, there are... There are, there's plenty com that can be done on the national level. There's plenty that can be done with, uh, with a strategy of full automation or decisive automation um, of an industrial strategy that says, look, we're not going to promise everybody, everybody's not going to have 
great industrial jobs. There won't be great industrial jobs. So if that's your idea of what a job is, you're going to be very disappointed by the 21st century. Instead, you're going to have a lot of free time. And that free time will not be remunerated, i.e., you know, we need to de-link work from wages and find ways of making people's living standards independent of what they can earn through salaried work. Um, that's essentially the post-capitalist project. Uh, and there are reformist versions of it. There's radical versions of it. But you will not like the world if it fragments into mutually antagonistic economic blocks. This is what John Maynard Keynes said to the left at the London Conference in 1934. He said, look, stop fantasizing about the breakup of the world. You won't like what happens next. Mm. And I am on that side. And every, we may have, we, we will have to make retreats from globalization. So t defeating TTIP was, was a retreat from globalization. Um, I think if we um, take if the left in Britain were able to take control of an industrial strategy that incentivizes something like the Green New Deal, incentivizes massive investment into green technology, that you know we want to build the wind turbines in Middlesbrough and we want to build the solar panels in Dorset, and that means, yes, protecting parts of the UK economy. Now, when we do that, the difference is you, there are Bill Mitchell and Thomas Fazzi, the American economic nationalist left. They think this is good. For them, that part of the American left that thinks sort of economic nationalism is good, um, I don't. For me, it's a necessary retreat. So, you know, in trench warfare, if the front trench gets overrun, you retreat to the second trench. You don't say it's an advance, it's a <laughs> retreat. Uh, and what's your intention? To retake this, the first trench, the globalization in this metaphor, um, it, on a more... Um, equitable basis. So you know, we, I know, meet leftists, and I'm sorry to say, some of them, you know, are there in the Labour Party that that fantasise about the breakup of the global order, that would love for the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements, the World Bank, the OECD, NATO, all to shatter. Me not, but I want to reform them, and the the process of reform does mean regaining some control at national level over over probably every aspect of economic and social policy that would be overseen by those transnational... So just very briefly, you, you're, you're batting quite hard that there should be a referendum, the UK should remain in the EU, but you know that lots of um, uh, people who might agree with you on economics are, oh, don't like this because it'll end up with us being told not to build the turbines in Middlesbrough because of state aid rules or whatever. Well, look, look my position on, on Brexit has changed because of the assessment I made about the, what is the main threat. That to, until probably Brexit itself, but certainly until Trump, it was possible to think that the main antagonism in Western society is between a working class or a, you know, a, 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 an exploited 99% uh, and a 1% elite that is that will not change, who will just be sitting forever on a perpetual Davos-led capitalism, uh, and we have to defeat them. Now, I still think that is... A, a dynamic, but the main dynamic, no, the main problem is the alt-right, the far right. They, being enabled by presidents now in Brazil, in America, uh, and uh, and beyond, including Russia, we, we the main enemy is the right. So everything I do on Brexit, for me, flows from the fact of the, the desire to make an alliance with, yes, the progressive centre. 
Um, no, I think that they are confused. Uh, I think that many are still clinging to the idea, uh, the kind of Steven Pinker, kind of everything's, everything's going to be all right in the end type idea. I want to make an alliance with those on the centre who are prepared to fight for what the left and the centre have in common, which I think should, should be the rule of law, democracy, uh, obviously observation of human rights, and the idea that there are social rights as well. This is fairly well embedded now into sort of uh, Rawlsian liberalism, the idea that there are ju social justice is not just a left thing. Um, so, yeah, let's... So, reading back from that, I want to make an alliance with everybody who who understands that Brexit is an enabler of xenophobia, increasingly misogyny. Look at look at the guy that UKIP, have, the, the star candidate of UKIP, Carl Benjamin, is most famous for a rape joke. I mean, so, mm. uh, and, and in the writing of the book, I became more and more convinced that misogyny is the glue that sticks a lot of this together. No, center and left need to fight the right, and Brexit is one battleground. There'll be many more. Um, uh, it's an extraordinary ranging book. We've got Lord of the Rings, the Lion Man from 40,000 BCE in a German cave, Kate Moss's obsession perfume and <laughs> crash courses on both the philosophy of physics and the philosophy of the French postmodernist. I mean, but through it all, one thing that um, strikes me as a thread is a sort of faith, despite all the science in it, there's a faith. Um, Part Marx, early Marx, as you say, not the, not the machine Marx maybe of later, but part Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher who ended up a sort of Catholic, you talk about a lot, in terms of um, virtue. And these things seem to me almost non-negotiable for you, that, that, that people are capable of virtue, that they can forge their own destiny and that they have free will. And I just wondered, are you prepared to admit that's a leap of faith rather than something that might be overturned by much of the clever science that you write about in passing in the book? Well, no, because to say it's a leap of faith, I mean, I was brought up a Catholic and for Catholics, faith is anti-rational. It's like, even if I'm shown the proof that God cannot exist, I must believe it exists. So in that sense, my my philosophy, such as ex political philosophy expressed in this book, is Aristotelian Marxism. And I, that, that is a, a Marxism that says humanity has a destiny. It doesn't have a predestiny in the Calvinist sense. It, has, it is a, an imaginary, it, it is an imagineer. We are imagineers with language and we, are, we have evolved completely accidentally in a way that makes it possible that we will liberate ourselves through technology and social progress. That's that's, as it were, the Marxist bit. And the Aristotelian bit is, and I think Marx was obviously an, an, an Aristotelian in this sense, is to say we are, we are facing de demands for machine control over us unparalleled in the 250-year history of industrial capitalism. In this century, a machine will ask us, on what basis do you give me orders? You, the puny human, who can't beat me at chess, go, or any other game. Why do you think you have the ability to give me orders? No, th what, there is obviously a religious answer to that because I have a soul, although I think people who I generally ask this question in the public speeches I do, uh, started to do around this book. And quite intelligent people are fall back immediately on the divine spark argument. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that by understanding that the purpose of human life is to create a virtuous society and a virtuous person within that society, which is what Aristotle teaches us, and what, to be honest, um, Augustine and Aquinas also brought into the, uh, into the Catholic world, 
by saying that, that's not a leap of faith. That's a that's a that's a logical construction on the basis of my understanding of humans as a biological uh, as a biological entity. But to be able to say, the, unless we give these machines that are going to control the world a moral philosophy, we are doomed. And the, the really disastrous thing would be to start giving them the moral, the moral philosophy that's in the heads of most people, which is utilitarianism, which is, you know, kind of make me 64 million tons of apples in the least damaging way you possibly can. Uh, well, you know, the next thing, it covers the earth with apple trees. Um, or even worse, the philosophy in the minds of Silicon Valley people is Nietzscheanism. It's fuck you. You know, it's it's uh, shoot you in the face and laugh about it. That, because this is what Nietzsche tells us to do. Um, so I yeah, I think, yes, the new thing for me is I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a trained philosopher. I didn't study philosophy. I've been reading a lot of philosophy to write this book. But I became convinced that we as a human species must become intelligent clients for moral philosophy. And that's what leads me in towards Alasdair MacIntyre. Alasdair MacIntyre was a Marxist who tried to write a moral philosophy and failed. And I haven't tried to do it either, but I think it was a good idea. And I think it's worth exploring what a what a humanistic Marxism would produce by way of, you know, the kind of seven virtues. <laughs> That's a great way to finish. And it's a great way to sum up the, the, the argument of the book, I think. So thanks very much indeed, Paul. Thank you. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview there with Paul Mason. Thanks uh, also to Alex Dean and Samir Rahim, who you heard from earlier in the podcast here in the heart of Westminster. Rebecca Liu was our producer. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, head eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.